take a look of what this city is. We've seen these different cities, and we saw that, first of all, that in Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire, the backdrop of when Isaiah gave the prophecy that a young woman shall conceive and give birth to a son, that God is there before we're there, He's there when we're there, and God's going to be here long after you and I are gone. We saw that in the celebration of Nazareth, this little hole in the wall town, for 30 years the home of Jesus, that God delights in using common everyday men and women. He's not looking for superstars. The marquee city of Christmas, Bethlehem, house of bread, how we dine upon the bread of life in Christ and his ministry. How we're celebrating as we'll come to this table to begin this new year together. Of course, when we saw at Rome, that God used the heart of the decadent capital itself for Augustus Caesar to make the decree to set up the details for Christ to come. And God is the God of all histories. Whether people are acknowledge it or not, God is using us. And of course we saw in Jerusalem, that in Jerusalem at the worship of Herod's great temple, that the real worship was taking place in a barn five and a half miles away in Bethlehem with the angels and the shepherds. And now we become what we worship. But we come this morning to Babylon. Babylon, from the start of Babel and the tower there, which later would become the old Babylonian Empire and the new Babylonian Empire, to the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What does Babylon teach us? The wise men, probably Persia, who took over Babylon, they come, the magi, from that? It's two things. Is that first of all, in the spiritual physics of God, and you and I may not like physics, doesn't matter. They still work. And in the spiritual physics of God, the more we try to control life, the more chaotic it becomes. And in the relational physics of life, the irony, the more we put our Heavenly Father first, the healthier our earthly relationships become. And no city teaches that better than Babylon. Well, we have our final installment of our uh, shepherds on the, in the know, and to tell us a little bit about this city. Watch this. Looks good. Uh, oh, okay, now pay attention, because our next episode of In the Know is all about Babylon, so we need to learn as much as we can. So, you want to know about Babylon? You're in luck, because this is the Cash Car! No way! <laughs> oh, what? Whoa! I'll drive around, ask you a few questions, you get them right, you win money. So... You guys want to play? No, we've got a lot of research to do, so we'll just be on whoa, our whoa, way. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is my Aunt Methuselah's favorite game show. We are so playing. Then let's go. Uh, Here is your first question. Babylon, the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, lies in the southern tip of Mesopotamia along what river? Oh, this is easy. Euphrates. Hey, I ain't afraid of nothing. No, I mean Euphrates River. That is correct. <laughs> Moving on to your next question. Okay. In 1750 B.C., the Babylonian ruler established a written law which transformed legal thought. What is the name of these laws? 
Oh, the, 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 uh, the Code of Hammurabi. Oh, the Code of Hammurabi. Oh, that's not correct. Correct. It's correct. <laughs> All right, we'll be on our way now. Just pull over. No, 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 no. We are going. Next question. All right, here we go. Here is your next question. What does Babylon mean? All right, all right, all right. We'll piece it out. Uh, Babylon, derived from Babel, meaning to confuse. Uh, lawn comes from lawn, meaning lawn full of babies. What? Incorrect. Really? Wow. You mean this city is not a lawn full of babies? Who would have thunk it? Samuel, it's okay. I got it wrong, too. Just get over it. Next question, please. All right, here's your next question. Babylon is famous for which of the seven wonders of the world? Uh, 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 all right, uh, can we have a street shout-out? Sure, hold on. Whoa! <laughs> All right, just look to somebody out there, ask them which wonder of the world Babylon is famous for. Well, who should we choose? Uh, how about those two men in uniform? Th th those two soldiers? Yeah, they're guardians of Babylon, they'll know. Oh, uh, well, no, they're walking away. Uh, hang on, you guardians of Babylon! That is correct! The uh, Hanging Gardens of Babylon! All right, here we go. Ha! Whoa! We're here. Okay, well, thanks for the ride. Oh, no, 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 no. We can double our money. We accept the Shadow Puppet Challenge. Uh, no, we do not. Here is your Shadow Puppet Challenge. I guess we do. Okay, uh... Wait, wait what is that? That's not even a question. Obviously, in the time of Belsazar. That's right, so far. Is this a joke? The king had a mighty banquet. Are we being punked? Then a hand came down, hung in the sky, and rode on the wall. Okay, not even Rorschach could come up with meanings for these images. What are you... Shh, shh, quiet. I'm trying to read the shift flips. Many, many, Tarkle, Ifarsen. Okay, now you're just making stuff up. Now, the sheep may be, but I'm not. That's what he said. Actually, he is correct. <laughs> the words on the wall mean your days are numbered, and only the prophet Daniel could interpret the words on the wall. Wow. Here are your shekels. Whoa. That's real money. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Cash Cart Babylonian Edition. Hey, why don't we play another game? Sam, we have got work to do. Don't bother, Gag. Let's go. I don't even know where we are now. We're Babylon. Well, what street? Ha! It's a lawn full of babies. <laughs> From the beginning of Babylon, which was Babel, that it, we find out that when man tries to remove himself from God, that the end result is we become not only more imprisoned, but our lives become more chaotic. If you have your Bible, we have a lot of passages to uh, look at. Let's first of all turn with me over to Matthew, the second chapter. It's on page 784 in your pew Bible. And once again, we freshly come back to that famous passage of Levi changing his name to Matthew, gift of God, of the wise men, the magi coming. In the second chapter in verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened in all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may also pay him homage. 
When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And they opened their treasure chest. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Who were they? We don't have a clue. All right, let's move ahead. Um, We know that they are magi. And we know in that Greek, which actually we get our word magic from, was that they were no doubt wise men in the sense from the east. We find out that probably, you know, as Babylon will be invaded by Persia and overrun by that under Cyrus, that they were probably Persian, probably Zoroastrian in the sense. We know that uh, actually Marco Polo, when he goes on his journeys, one of the things he goes looking for are what are called the Chronicles of Sufi Abbas. And we don't think that he ever found any of those. But supposedly the wise men in present day Iraq, in the area right there of looking for who were they. There were many. There were also the Babylonian connection, of course. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar took the Jewish community away? In fact, there are many of the Persians here that live in Beverly Hills and here in this area. Persian Jews go all the way back to the exile, their own Babylonian captivity. We know that in this time of the year, and that they celebrate as they are looking for the rising of this Christ child, or the rising of this star. Zoroastrianism, and this is what's interesting, God uses, as they say, He uses the gods of the pagans become the servants of the Christ child. That Zoroastrianism believed in this one God, in this yin and this yang, Ahura Mazda and the fighting. There was also this mother and child and this dying God. And they see this star. They are the great alchemists, chemists. They're great astronomers and they believe they're connected to the heavens. And this star, whatever this is, and people have for many years tried to piece together, was it lining up of the dog star? Was it of Jupiter? We know and certainly of Mars that time aligned together. No one really knows for sure what it was. But they know that it means it's the birth of a king. And so they come. Now, these we three kings, they weren't kings. That was later on that the church assigned that to them. But at this time, listen to how people are, lit, are understanding what's going on. Josephus, by the way, said that Magi came and visited Herod in 10 B.C., the Jewish historian. Pliny, the historian, said that Magi came to visit Nero in 66 A.D., but listen to what the Roman historian Suetonian says, quote, There had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fate at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. That's in the first century. Tacitus, the great Roman historian, said, quote, There was a firm persuasion at this time in the East was to grow a powerful ruler from Judea to acquire universal empire. And so what we see is that God... These wise men are seeking this birth of this child. And God is using all these things to point towards him. And the question for you and me is, what are we seeking? What are we really looking for? I mean, these guys go to an incredible length. They probably journey for two years, as it says. Is why Herod, from when the star first appears, is why he will kill all the children two years old and younger, taking no chance, this crazy madman. And so... What they go looking for this. We're looking for the perfect relationship. We're looking for the perfect job. We're looking for the perfect church. By the way, if you're looking for the perfect pastor, keep looking. But we're looking for 
That's the perfect setup in life. And what's interesting is that God discerns our hearts by the things that we are after. And this brand new year in front of us in 2012, we got our goals, we got our hopes, we got our fears, the things we don't want to have happen, the things we just long to have happen. And God takes all these in front of him and sifts through them. And when you and I actually come and we put God first, rather than trying to control life, there's an order that comes out of it that no matter what comes at us is going to be remarkably peaceful. I've got a passage. Turn with me over to Genesis in the 11th chapter. It's on page 8 in your pew Bible. If you brought your own Bible, it should be pretty early on in your book as well. If not, we need to talk afterwards. But Of course, Genesis 1 through 12, protology means first things, not proctology. Protology is first things. Eschatology means last things. And both of them are very... Heavy laden with symbolism. They're both literal and symbolic, and the big discussion is which is which. But you read Genesis 1 through 11. When it comes to Abraham, it comes down to what we'd call historical relatability or historical control. Abraham lives to be 120. That's not outrageously long. But what do you do with these other stories of the creation that are living forever and the flood story? And they're like, again, I told you before, impressionist painting. Step back and look at it. Don't push on the details too hard or you miss the message of what's going on. It's authoritative. But hear this great story. The flood has taken place in the very first city, Nimrod, who is in Chronicles will tell us was a a mighty warrior. And he's a hunter of souls, it says, of men. He becomes really the first tyrant, fastens this city. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. Pause. As we read through this, look for the repeat of the verb in here. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad on the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Babel means the gate of God. Balbel in Hebrew means confusion. So there's a play on that. Now in this story you'll notice they come together and they want three things. They want to start a city. They want to build a tower which is a place of worship. And they want to make a name for themselves. A new city, a name for themselves, and a new religion. And what they are doing in this beautiful story is that they are saying, we don't need God anymore. So let us build a tower to the heavens. Come, let us do this. Come, let us do this. And the things that you and I, what are they afraid of? That they'll be forgotten. That they will be scattered over the face of the earth. And the more they try to control things, the more they're becoming separated from God. 
And so God goes down and gives them a new language, and so they all spread out out of His mercy. Why did God banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden after they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. To live forever in a sinful state is called hell. And so God puts death as a tether on all of us. Some of us live only a few years. Some of us live a long years. Nobody lives forever in this state. And that's God's mercy. Someday you and I will be given perfect bodies. I don't know what it is. I think it'll be 5-7. We'll have to wait and see, whatever it is. But when we gather together at that point, because now sin won't be infecting it. And this is what he's doing with Babel. Notice God says, let us go down. It's this anthropomorphism making like God didn't, you know, physically to look at them. They think they're building this huge thing. And God looks down on this little puny thing and says, what are they doing down there? Glory to humankind in the highest for humans control all things. Could that not be a motto for the culture you and I live in? Glory to humans. We humans have the answer to everything. Versus glory to God. And God says, not so. And he comes down and he merely shakes the basket with a new language for everybody. What he does at Babel, remember, he undoes at Pentecost. Everybody can now hear in their own language the good news of Christ. And as we live in this city here, more language groups in this city, as I said, in our LA Unified than in the New York school systems. The world is here. And God speaks in all the different languages. He shows to the shepherds the night crew, the down and out, if you will, people, the angels tell them of Christ, but he sells by the heavens to the magi. God is in behind all religions. There, God has truth in all religions. There is one way to salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. But our Jewish friends, our Muslim friends, our Hindu and Buddhist friends, they're all truths within their faith. Even the secularists that are out there. You know, I love that story of uh, the scientists who said, I've told you before, that They came before God. They said, God, we've pretty much figured out the cosmos and we don't need you anymore. In fact, uh, we could make humans if we wanted to. And God said, let's have a contest. Go ahead. So the scientist scooped down. He scooped up some soil and God went, no, 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 no. Go get your own dirt. (laughs) Just because we figure out the processes of how God uses things, he is the one who creates. And in this story of Babel, which will become Babylon, that the Babylonian Empire and Hammurabi will become one of the ancient, this is the old Babylonian Empire, the code of Hammurabi. I've seen this thing over in the, if you've ever been to the Louvre in Paris, they have so much there. I mean, the French pillaged the world. I tell you, but if you go in and you see this, that this statement, this code of Hammurabi of what the laws of humankind were. And so Babylon becomes this great city. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, Nabu-Palassar, in the 6th century B.C. will rise up and take over. And then Nebuchadnezzar will attack Israel. The ten northern tribes have already been taken out by the Assyrians and take them into captivity. And that's what happens to Daniel. And Daniel is taken into captivity. And Daniel even there, God will use. And then the Persians, well, the Medes first, the Persians will come and sack Babylon. And the first time the word Messiah is used is of a Persian king. My anointed one. God uses all, and this morning as we gather here, when you think 2011, the changes that have taken place, some of the evil men and dictators on this world, from Osama bin Laden to Muammar Gaddafi, they're just a bad memory right now. 
And God raises up who God raises up, and God will take down who God wants to take down. And that is a word and a terrible warning to America. As we go this next year into this year, 2012, and as we look, yes, and what do we worship? We as Americans worship power. We worship fame. We worship wealth. Nothing a matter of those things in themselves. Don't misunderstand me. It's when they become the very focal ones of life. And I tell you, one of the most frightening things to me is a secular United States of America because we have more power right now than any empire in this planet's history. And what I, what I praise the Lord for are the great men and women, godly men and women that are still in this culture. And I, by the way, I believe a free society, the church thrives in better than any time it's a state-funded church, as you look at history. So I thank the Lord that this is not, quote, a Christian nation. But it's the Christians in this nation that should be the salt and light to this world. Amen? And as you go and get involved into this city, this city, as well as whatever our home city is, that we see that when we release and trust God, we don't have to control this thing. We don't have to make people believe the way we do. God is very good at being God and being able to say, but to tell them the truth and to share this good news. The crime becomes the punishment. They think that they will control life and get to heaven so they don't need God and worship themselves. And so what does God do? They become slaves of their desires and spread out. Nebuchadnezzar, who God had used, he stands and in this great, in the fourth chapter of Daniel, we'll read it, you go home this afternoon. He stands and he looks out and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he says, is this not Babylon that I have made for my glory? And God says, the crime is the punishment. That's insane, Nebuchadnezzar, that you think you did that. So he becomes, has a psychotic break until he becomes where his hair grows. It says his feathers, it grows so long, and his fingernails. He has a complete psychotic break until he looks up and says, God must have done this, and sanity returns. And when we start to think that we don't need God, and I tell you, Bel Air, one of the scariest things for a church is the moment we become practical atheists, where we do great things for God, but we really don't need Him anymore because we got it all wired. The best thing God can do for us as a church and for you as a people and for me as a brother in Christ for you is get us into places where we say, God has got to help out in this situation or this isn't going to go. Because then God gets, we give him the chance. We say, well, why don't you take over? And he says, thank you, and does. And so we have this, this ability. The more we try to make it work, the less it does. I mean, there's a lot of crazy things. I remember the first time that I was taking uh, skiing and in Colorado, and my uh, brother thought it would be funny to take me up on an advanced slope. I'd never been on skis before. and Yeah, he was that way. But anyway... Uh, but somebody came up to me and uh, told me uh, after about 34 rolls down the hill, then we got on a small list. Well, it's real simple, Mark. Just put your weight on the downhill ski and you go, I don't want to go downhill. And they go, no, no. If you put your weight on the downhill ski, you go up. That's crazy. Until you find out, let the edge do the work, not you. I mean, that's exactly in the sense where God says, well, you give it over to me and I'll take care of it. What do you mean? Just hand it to me. Loving your enemies is like heaping coals of fire on there. Like I said, forgive your enemies. It messes with their head. <laughs> Rather than striking back at your enemy, saying, I'm going to get vengeance, of saying, Lord, I give it to you. They stand before you. And God does justice in that. One of the most frightening recordings I've ever heard when I was a, 
uh, first ordained, uh, there was a recording of a gentleman. He was on a, I forget uh, what light plane he was flying in eastern Colorado, and they had the recording between him and the tower. And, and it went into, and it was his solo flight, and it went into this stall, and it started to go down out of control. And you heard the controller keep saying, let go of the yoke, let go of the handle, let go of the yoke, because it would ride itself. And he kept holding on and going, I'm going down, I'm going down. They go, let go, let go. And he's going, I'm going down. That was silent. He's in the spin and he's going and he's going to die. And they go, if you take your hands off the wheel, it will ride itself. And he doesn't, because it's so counterintuitive. And you and I, we get in these situations and God says, give it up here, give it up here. And we're going, no, we're going to control it. And he says, no, let it go. And that's what Babylon, Babylon teaches us. And even God does that. And not only teaches that, but in the relational physics, that the more that we put God first in our life, the more our relationships grow and are enriched. Last passage, turn back over to that book of Revelation to the 18th chapter. And so in all of human history, what we celebrate this day is why epiphany. You know, as Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire for 300 years. Some emperors kind of didn't care. Some of them hated Christians. You and I are going to gather with so many people in glory that were crucified, that were tied to torches as human candles lit for Nero's games, to watch their families destroyed by the wild animals, the warm-up show for the gladiators, for doing what you're doing right now. Worshipping. And worshipping Christ, not the emperor. And some emperors were horrible, others really didn't care. But John, the book of Revelation, he has gathered, and he is on the penal colony of Patmos, remember. John, the young disciple who stood by the cross of Christ... The only one that was willing to stand and die for Christ is the only one who won't be martyred. One tradition says that he was boiled and he didn't die, but the Roman superstition of double jeopardy, that if the God saved you from a capital punishment, you couldn't kill them again. But he was banished to Patmos, and on Patmos he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning. It's already called the Lord's Day. And this, rep, this strange if you will, political cartoon, this impressionist painting of what is going to happen in life. And there's bizarre pictures coming. Christ is among his churches. There are seven seals, and not not those kind, but seven seals on around this break. And every time a seal is broken, something on life happens. I think we're between the sixth and seventh seal, if you really thought. And when the last seal is broken, there are seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. And the world is coming to this climax before Christ himself returns. But Babylon, which is the code also for Rome at this time, for all those who stand against God, here is the end of what takes place in the 18th chapter. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor, this mega angel. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul bird and of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunken of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. In the last chapter of world history, there will be a combination of what it was in the very first chapter of world history. 
Babel wanted to combine economic power and religious power and political power. The last deal of the deck, there will be a religion and economics gathered together because Satan can only impersonate God. He, he's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. And Satan has never come up with an original idea. All he can do in his fallen minions is like the vandals of the cosmos corrupt the good that is already out there. And so trying to combine all this, and nobody has power to buy or sell unless they're a part of this club. Babylon the Great. And so many people are made rich. I'm thinking of writing a new book, How to Get Rich in the End Times. But as, but the interesting, and why is it that every cult before Christ returns, they liquidate their assets? Like you can't get into heaven if you have hard assets? I don't know. But as, back on point, Pastor. So as it was, as they bring this together, and so the mighty angel says, How Babylon has fallen. And then look at verse 9, which you read. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication, sexually, spiritually, in that sense, sleeping with this harlot, and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear and torment and say, Alas, alas, the great city, Babylon, the mighty city. For in one hour your judgment has come. And that fast. And so, when God returns, and when no one knows when Christ will return... Jesus himself said, only the Father knows. But you and I know one thing. I'm not going to live forever in this stumpy body. And whether I am uh, buried or cremated, I like uh, what the one pastor said, his wife said, you want to be buried or cremated? He says, I don't know. Surprise me. You know, I really don't care. But But someday when you throw dirt on this stumpy body, I know I won't be in there. I will be in the presence of Christ. And nobody in glory yet has their perfect bodies. But when Christ returns, we go in to meet him. And the new earth and the new heaven begins. And what you and I right now need to realize, God is perfect in His timing. You and I are here for a reason, for His reason. And when you and I discover this purpose, the power here in Los Angeles is not in the halls of the city supervisors. It's not in the studios. It's not in the gangs that are out there. It's not even in Caltrans. It's not in L.A. Unified. The power in this city is you and moi. The power of the risen Christ in us to love the unlovely, to forgive, to stand boldly for Christ in a classy way, not having the control and putting the Lord first, blessing our estranged relationship with our families and our friends and just saying, Lord, I give them to you. That's how the Holy Spirit moves. And when Christ returns, when we'll look back and we'll think and we'll do the brewer salute and say, what was I worried about? The last passage, look over in the 22nd chapter. Remember, in Babel they were saying, Come, let us do this. Come, let us build our own. Let us make a name for ourselves rather than God's name. And now the reverse takes place in the very end when the risen Christ says in verse 12, See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. To repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. And let everyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. They bring gold, the Magi, this coming Friday in the sign of a king. And giving God our best. They bring frankincense, which was they used on the altar of worship. 
Pontifex is Latin for priest. You know what it means? Bridge builder. Pontifex Maximus, the high priest with Caesar, a bridge builder, but the priest was the one who bridged between the person and the divine. You're bridge builders to step across racial and economic and cultural lines and to bring the good news of Christ and above all, myrrh. Myrrh for a sign of death. Myrrh for that little baby that would someday pay for not only the Magi's sins, but my sins and yours. And out of that death comes life. And when you and I say, Lord, I trust you so much, and we come to this table right now, and when you take that bread and you dip it in that cup, and as you put it into your mouth, and you say, Lord, I give you my life. I'm afraid. I'm a broken vessel. But I trust you. And God will take that. And sometimes from the death of a relationship, new life comes. Sometimes the death of a career and our finances, new life comes. And even when the death of these little stumpy bodies, new life will come. And we have nothing to be afraid of. Alexander was flat out a military genius. That's how this young Macedonian could be able to conquer the known world. Alexander would very often sit in judgment of his own troops on the battlefield. He never really intended on conquering the known world. He was just after Darius and chasing him around. And he will die before he ever comes back. But it's recorded that one time when he was sitting in judgment and he was over his men and one would be judged for stealing, for lying, and Alexander would give out the different punishments. And one man was brought in and they said, what is the charge against them? And they said, cowardice in battle. Alexander demanded that you die on the spot for him or he would kill you. One thing Alexander could not ever stand was cowardice in battle. And he said to this man who was charged with cowardice, What is your name? And the man said, Alexander. And Alexander stood to his feet. And he said, You change your life or you change your name. Alexander is not a coward. And he let him go. You are a Christian. Little Christ. This table says, we change our life or we change our name. And when we now are called beloved, loved of the Lord, that he can do things with us. This is not a Presbyterian table. It is a table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite any and all of you who have given your hearts to Christ. If you have never given your heart to the Lord, what a morning to do it, a brand new day. And only those, don't rush to hear, that are willing to say, Lord, I will change my life to be in accordance with what you want. Not on your own power, but by his. Some have called this Eucharist, meaning giving thanks for what Christ has done. Others have called it Holy Communion, meaning our oneness with the Lord and each other. Others have called it the Lord's Supper, meaning the last thing Christ did before his passion. But on the night Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that I am giving for you. When you eat this, remember me. And after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
that I am pouring out for the removal of your sins. When you drink this, remember me. These are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Shall we pray? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, Lord, for this great and miraculous gift that you have given to us, Lord. A brand new year, our sins are as buried as far as the east is from the west because of what your son has done, and you will never remember them again. Lord, I pray now that you would come and set aside these elements from a common to a holy use. May they truly become the body of Christ and blood of Christ spiritually, and Lord, seal your people to your heart. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who is coming back, King of King and Lord of Lords, grant us your shalom, your peace. In your name we pray. Amen.